1 Corinthians chapter 15. We continue this morning as we're nearing uh, the end of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 Corinthians, the letter. Um, I'll be reading this morning uh, verses 20 through 28. Remember, if you recall, we began this verse, this passage last week, and we only got to um, part, of, part of the way through it, so we'll complete this text this morning. Um, but for now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 20. Again, please give your full attention. This is the word of God. <clears throat> but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as many, uh, for, for as by man came death, by a man has, has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, the kingdom of God the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Well, as I mentioned, we began working through this passage last week, um, and we saw that in those first verses, uh, those first few verses of this passage, uh, we saw quite a lot packed into them, right? Even in just those first verses, verse 20, 22, um, Paul defended the resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and the resurrection of believers. Um, there's an organic connection he makes between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of those who are in him, <clears throat> Christ is the first fruits, right? He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, that is, believers who have died in Christ. And there is this organic connection between the two, the first fruits and the whole harvest that is to come that will follow. And in those three verses, Paul gives us the big macro picture, the story, the history of redemption. And, you know, there's a little phrase that a theologian used to use uh, that captured some of the history of redemption and some of the significance of the structure of creation in the history of redemptive history. And it's a phrase filled with fancy words, but it makes a very important point. Um, And it's a point that's missed by many otherwise well-meaning Christians. And that phrase, uh, I taught this to a high school exegesis class once, and um, it generated many blank stares back at me. So I promise to try to explain better uh, what it is that it means. But the phrase goes like this. Eschatology precedes soteriology. I don't know if any of you have heard that before. Eschatology precedes soteriology. And again, we touched on something of this last week when we talked about creation, how God, uh, his creation was eschatologically charged. It was charged. The end was built into creation from the beginning. Many people think of eschatology, which is just a fancy technical way of referring to things related to the end. 
right? The word means last or final or ultimate or end. And many think of redemptive history or covenantal history as merely in terms of a timeline. And we talk, when we talk about theology and its many subtopics, and at the end we talk about eschatology, right? That comes at the end. But it would be mistaken to merely view eschatology as simply that. The point is <clears throat> that it's not just the end things that we're dealing with. Think of it more appropriately as a dual trajectory, right? There is the onward, right, leading to the end, but there's also the upward trajectory. Upwards, leading to the consummation of all things, ultimate things. And that's properly what we mean when we talk about eschatology, ultimate things, last things, consummate things. God created, you'll remember, with the end in mind. We saw that, that last day, the Sabbath, it stood for the rest, right? That eschatological, final, consummate rest in the presence of God, forever dwelling with him in glory. And so creation was charged in this way. It was eschatologically charged. And I hope Mrs. Garbarino will forgive me for using the word so many times. Um, we have heard so many sermons that used loaded language and loaded terms that were undefined, that were not helpful at all. But I think if we understand what it means, it is helpful for us uh, to understand what is going on here. We need to understand so that we understand the big picture. The truth, that ultimate, last things, consummate things, they come before salvation. Right? If creation was designed, if it was built with the end in mind, and certainly it comes before soteriology, things related to salvation. Salvation doesn't come onto the scene until later, until after the fall. But Paul is telling the Corinthians and the church throughout the ages about the end of the story. And what happens at the end is resurrection. It's resurrection. And so remember those kind of big categories, that, that big outline of redemptive history. There's curse, or creation, curse, cure, and then consummation. Right? That's kind of the, the, the picture of what's going on. And in those opening chapters of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, of our passage, verses 20 to 22, we read, we read of the doom, of the dethronement of that great enemy, death. It's doom, it's sure dethronement. And look again as we pick up in our outline um, as we, of the passage at death's dethronement in verses 20 to 22. And then verses 23 to 24, we see death's destruction. In verses 25 to 28, we see God's dominion. And this is uh, the outline in the back of your liturgy. <clears throat> death is doomed. Death will be destroyed, and God will have absolute dominion. <clears throat> and we saw that the structure that Paul is describing, that he uses in these verses, the structure is regarding the two Adams, remember? Two Adams. Verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In the first Adam, our first parent, right? Proto-Adam. All those in Adam, they what? They die. But those in Christ, in the eschatological Adam, Jesus himself, all in him shall be what? Raised, they shall be made alive. And wonderfully and gloriously, in the death of Christ came the death of death. The great and last enemy of us all. And that's what Paul is saying here. For those in Christ, Christ earned for them that ultimate, graduated, consummate eschatological life. 
that the first man, the first Adam, failed to earn. That Adam earned what? He earned death, spiritual death and physical death. Separation of body and soul and separation of himself from God. <clears throat> we ask again that all-important question that we asked last week and that must be answered by every man and woman and child. Who is your representative? Right? Who are you in? Because that question is a matter of life and death. It truly is a matter of life and death because only those in Christ will have life. And only those in Christ have their sins dealt with. And only those in Christ are freed from sin, yes, from death itself. Those in Adam remain in their sins, and God's just judgment remains upon them. And this, brothers and sisters, is one of those things about which we can become, uh, we can get inappropriately comfortable with the sure, the, the, the certain perishing of those who do not believe in Christ. We can become inappropriately comfortable. And I pray that our hearts will more and more break at the realization of the punishment which awaits those who are outside of Christ. Death is brutal. It's painful. It's awful. It hurts, even for us who belong to Jesus. How much more for those who are not in him? How much more for the, uh, the, 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 the future that awaits them? We need to be a people who could talk with people, ask them questions and interact with them and be comfortable and confident in doing so. Ask them where they go to church. Oh, you stopped going to church? We should join us. You should come visit us uh, worship sometime. Right? The parking isn't great. The building's not perfect. But oh, what rich biblical truth is proclaimed from his word where we feast upon that there. We can talk to people and we can tell them, come, eat, taste, have life. It's like that hole-in-the-wall restaurant that we all know of. I remember in Anaheim, when we lived there, there was a place called Sal's Bit of Italy. Sal's Bit of Italy. And it was back in the corner of a dank and haggard kind of strip mall type of setup. And you never saw ads for Sal's Bit of Italy. And if you just drove by it and looked after someone told you to look for it, because you wouldn't see it, if, you know, you couldn't see it, it wouldn't stand out if nobody told you to go there. You'd never see it. But once you got in and you got your meal, oh, what amazingly rich food, what delightful, tasty Italian food they had at Sal's Bit of Italy. And the place was always packed, though they never advertised. Right? How is that? How is a business that never advertised so busy and successful? It's because no one who ate there could stop talking about it. Right? And by word of mouth, they couldn't stop talking about how amazing it was. Right? And imagine the results. If none of us could stop talking about what we read in God's word, what we see there, this, this, uh, uh, what would the result be if we talked about the delightful, nourishing food upon which we feast every Sunday here? And don't hear me wrong here. I'm not commending any particular preaching. Right? God can use a donkey to accomplish his goals. But it's the truths therein that are delightful. The delightful meals that come from here, that we receive here, are nourishing and spirit-strengthening. Not for the preacher, but for the food. And the meals about which we should digest and discuss are meals of God's word. The truths that truly transform. They are God's glorious truths. The truths that everyone needs, and none are exempt from needing 
or needing to hear them. If you delight in and are fed by the teaching of God's word here, tell others, speak of it often, especially those in Adam, especially those in Adam. We don't know all the means that God uses to bring life to his elect. But we do know that the most effective way, and all the statistics bear this out, the single most effective way that a church grows, and by the way, that's for the purpose of glorifying God and bringing, Him bringing life to people, the single most effective way is members inviting others to church. Right? It's not grand programs or um, fancy uh, pro, um, programmatic uh, um, things that are going on. It's inviting others to church. And when they come, if it's God's will, he gets a hold of them, right? He gets hold of them. And we rejoice that he has his way with them and that they have life. And so those are the two structures, in Adam or in Christ. And I pray that Christ is the one in whom your life is hidden, even this morning. And for those in Christ... They have the assurance of God making it all right one day. We've discussed last week the, 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 bad, the very bad news of the fall of the first Adam. The death that entered into God's creation as a result of that fall. It was very bad news indeed. What glorious news to know that God will one day make all things right. What a glorious promise from our great God and Savior. And that all the evil in this world, death itself will be overturned and destroyed by virtue of the, ver- the victory won by Christ and his resurrection. And that's the second point that naturally follows, right? Death is dethroned, it is doomed, but also death's utter destruction in verses 23 to 24. The day is coming for certain when death will be finally and completely destroyed and done away with. And the life, death, and resurrection of Christ have caused us now to be raised spiritually, even now. Right? We talk about, as, as believers, being dual citizens. We are citizens here. We are citizens of glory. That is our true home. And this is all the work of the Holy Spirit when he comes for those who belong to Christ. The Father has given them to Jesus. And when you came to Christ, when you first heard the gospel or read the gospel, and you realized and confessed in your heart honestly, Yes, I am a sinner. God is holy and just, and I'm not. I need a Savior. And Christ is the only one, the only substitute. I believe on Him. I trust, I love, I rejoice in Jesus. And when you did that, it was the Holy Spirit working your heart. The Holy Spirit creating faith, strengthening faith, and drawing you. God uses many means, but ultimately... It is the Spirit testifying to your hearts. He gives faith. And the Holy Spirit opened your hearts. If you belong to Christ, the Holy Spirit opened your heart to the truth. And he brought you to Jesus, this one who obeyed and who paid for you 2,000 years ago. Right? Why? Why is it that he saved you? Well, it's not for anything in you. But because the Father has set his love upon you. For his own good pleasure. And he gave you to the Son before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 and 2 gloriously tell us. And you've been spiritually raised now. But there remains yet the promise of which the Spirit is a down payment. The guarantee that you'll one day be raised bodily, physically. 
And it's this very thing that the Corinthians were denying. Paul tells that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep. That's the word, by the way, where we get our word coma from. Right? Fallen asleep. Speaking of those who have died in Christ. The final and full resurrection harvest is guaranteed by virtue of Christ's resurrection. It is the first fruits of the whole thing. And that which God has set into motion, necessarily, it must culminate in final destruction of death. Death's destruction. What is that series of events that God has set into motion? Again, look at verses 23 and 24. It says, But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That's how it will unfold. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to him. That's the end. And he delivers the kingdom over to God the Father after destroying every rule, every power, every authority. So Paul is telling us that the Easter, what we think about that is far more important, far bigger than the single fact of Christ's resurrection 2,000 years ago. The Corinthians believed in Christ's bodily resurrection. But the huge and glorious complex of all that that means, they miss, they denied it. Because in reality, it's all connected. Paul went to great lengths in the verses that preceded these to talk about that. It's all one event, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers. Yes, Christ was raised from the dead. Yes, he was vindicated. It was vindication that death had no claim on him. But it also means that we will be raised from the dead on the last day. And the series of events that he set in motion, they must culminate in the destruction of death itself. Death's destruction. Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of the destruction of death on the last day. And what's more, we will enter into the fullness of the glory of the age to come. That which was inaugurated with his coming. Christ's resurrection in the future, that time upward and onward and endward, his coming into this present evil age and inaugurating, beginning something, nothing less than new creation. That's the reason we worship the Lord on the first day of the week. Because it's the birthday of the new creation. Right? And most people think of Sunday as uh, the end of the week, the weekend. But it's not. Sunday is the first day of the week. God gave the Sabbath in creation. Right? It comes from its creation mandate. And even before he made a way of salvation, creation was geared towards that final Sabbath rest. It was eschatologically charged. Creation pointing towards something. The giving of the Decalogue, right, the Ten Commandments, that was not the start of the Sabbath keeping. That was not the first time that it was announced. It goes all the way back to creation. All the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. And that kingdom, the birthday of the new creation, as some have referred to it, that happened 2,000 years ago. And now with anticipation and expectation, we rejoice that this day is coming. It's inevitable. And it will be glorious. It's that praise-evoking day when our broken and beleaguered bodies 
will be made like Christ, glorified. It is a day to come that is just as undeniable as any day in the past. Just as those days certainly happen, so too the last day certainly will come to pass. And Paul assures them in Corinth, and it assures the church throughout the ages that Christ was raised from the dead and we will be raised from the dead when he returns. Glorious indeed. And it says at the uh, parousia, right, the, his coming, Christ's visible return, not a secret return, not a spy-like sneaky coming, but when he returns visibly, then comes the end. Right? That's our chart. It's pretty simple. You may have seen some pretty elaborate charts trying to explain how all this happens, trying to make sense of these things. Some that look like an electrical schematic from a new car. But that's, that's it. When Christ returns, everything happens. Praise God. Paul simply tells us about clear events, the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. And that ushers in, ushers us into glorified existence of the new heaven and the new earth. When he returns, when the king returns on that day, his spiritual kingdom will become full, physical kingdom, consummated, glorified. And it is then that he will overthrow all authority and power and every one and thing who sets themselves up and lifts themselves high and exalted. Right? We don't, notice we don't see it here a gradual taking over of power. It's not a slow, slow speed chase kind of thing. Rather, he's going to completely overthrow it all on that day when he returns, right? Not little by little, over the ages. He does it so that when he comes visibly and physically and gloriously, all will bow down to him. Right? This might bring to mind the passage in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> Well-known passage speaks to this. Notice in Philippians 2, both of those things that were needed to save sinners that we talked about last week, uh, Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience, both of those things are mentioned here. Those things that are both imputed to you as Christians, as those in Christ. Uh, Philippians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Right, he kept the covenant. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right, he paid our penalty. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And you see all those things mentioned in there. And in the end, brothers and sisters, when Jesus returns, he will destroy every rule and power and authority, everything that stands up uh, against the risen and exalted king. Everything in this present evil age will be brought to an end on that day. And will continue to do so until the day when he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Right, look at verse 26 of our passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Right, that hideous enemy. Horrific though it be, it continues until that day, until the return of Jesus. And notice, brothers and sisters, the enemy, death, is not something that will be eradicated by science or by medicine. 
medication or treatment will not destroy death. It will not conquer death. Apologies to all the sci-fi fans out there, but technology will never vanquish death. The Bible says that death has a day of its end, and it will be destroyed when? On that last day, when Christ returns. And that awful, unnatural enemy, that bringer of pain and sorrow and sadness. When you look upon the one that you love in the hospital bed or in the hospice bed, and you're clinging to those last minutes with your loved ones, and then the time comes and the body and the soul separate, and you still look in the face of the one that you loved, now lifeless and without motion, and tears come, and they wash over your face and your hearts, and your hearts break with sadness. But God says what? He says, no, I get the victory. And one day, dear child, death will be gone. No more will there be funerals or coffins or burial plots. I have conquered it in the death of my son, Jesus. And it will be no more. And not until then, and only then, will will our redemption be complete. Our redemption is incomplete until that last day when believers will dwell upon the earth. When their raised bodies are united again with their souls. Our redemption is not complete. Until that last day when we dwell on the new earth. And that in between time, between death and that resurrection, when a believer dies, it isn't the end. That's not the completion of redemption. Those believers are awaiting their bodies. And the body will be redeemed. When we receive that, for which we now groan inwardly and long for, what we eagerly wait for, Paul says in Romans 8, then our redemption will be complete. Gloriously. You know, we mentioned uh, throughout a number, a number of times throughout this um, preaching through 1 Corinthians, uh, Greek philosophy and its impact on those in Corinth, particularly Plato, right? He was way off. He was wrong in what he taught. The soul does not merely escape from the prison house of the body so that it's free to kind of drift up to heaven. What an abysmal view of heaven. It's not a biblical view of heaven. The separation from body and soul, that's actually devastating and dreadful. Far from being heaven, it's a dreadful thing. And we sense, and our instinct is that it is not right because it's not right. It is not something to delight in. It is certainly not something the Lord our God delights in. But he's done something to fix it. Right? He's done something to fix the situation, to fix the curse, and to bring all things to consummation, particularly his people, to glory. He's provided the cure for the situation. Even the word cure is not full enough or strong enough word, really, to describe the magnitude of what the Father did, <clears throat> the redemption of his people. Because ultimately what he did was he provided the cure in the resurrection of Jesus when he, when he took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. That was part of his humiliation, recall, taking the form of his creation. In Philippians 2, we just read. And know this also, dear Christian. Not only did he do that for you, but he took it upon himself permanently. He will forever have it. Forever. And when this same Jesus returns with the souls of those who now currently and consciously enjoy his presence, 
who died before us, when he returns, he brings them back. Right? Listen to First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as though as others do, do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even though through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. On that great day, the soul and the body reunite. They come again together. As created, we're not to be separated, those two. We're not to created for disease and decay and death. We're not intended or designed for those devastating effects of these things. And so we long and we yearn for that day, the day of death's destruction to come. And the Apostle Paul tells us that that very day is certain to come. It's going to come. The last enemy to be destroyed and surely will be destroyed is death. Oh, what hope that brings us, dear Christian. What hope, what comfort, what rejoicing. That decaying body in the box. And for some people, the decaying gets a big head start on death. For all of us, in actuality. But that body will for certain one day be raised anew. A resurrected body, a glorified body. And it will be so by the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And that's our hope, right? That's the hope of every believer. That terrible enemy death brings tears and mourning and sorrow and heartache. That's a result of the bad news. The very bad news. Praise be to God. The good news is that someone really did enter into creation, into the world, and really did accomplish all that was needed to be done. And he did so, so that a better day, the best day, is guaranteed for certain. It is a day when there will be no more sorrow, and it is a day when God will be all in all. And that's the last point there. Starting verse 27, he will be all in all, the dominion of God, the utter dominion of God. An absolute dominion of God, <clears throat> our King. See what he does there in verse, uh, says in verse 27. He quotes Psalm 8, right? This is a quote in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 27. It's a quote of Psalm chapter 8. It says, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Right, what's he saying? He's saying, in other words, there, Christ is the second Adam who rightfully earned the position of being the head of the covenant perfectly. He paid the penalty for his people. Fully. The first Adam was the head of the old creation, but the second Adam is the head of a new creation. And he goes on, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him. Who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. His dominion, absolute. And when God the Son destroys death, 
at his return on the last day. And all those who belong to him are raised from the dead and made like him. It's then that he will take up his place as ruler and king of a new humanity, of a glorified humanity. And then we will dwell in a new cosmos where God is all in all. Right? This is not some kind of pantheism, but it speaks of God's dominion. He is all in all. God is certainly powerful. He is sovereign. He is controlling all things by the word of his power. Right? Because this is what we confess. But now, sin yet remains. The ravages of the curse yet remain in our lives, in creation, in the world. And the words of the psalmist still ring true. Psalm 12 says, The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the children of men. Oh, what a descriptor of our age. The wicked yet prosper. God's people are persecuted. My heart is yet restless in making idols. Our spirits are yet free from the flesh in the sin nature. They cling so closely to us. Fatally wounded though it may be, it still pollutes and infects and dirties. But now, and listen, dear Christian, there is a day coming when our cup will be full and overflowing. And not just a little blessed uh, moment here and there in devotions or meditation or worship that we receive these, these small fillings of our cup. That will be the norm for us, dear Christian. That blessing, that overflowing, gushing cup of the Lord's blessing will issue forth an inexpressible joy and elation. And the joy of our hearts will be lifting up our cups, more, Lord, more. And it will be filled. And we'll say, more, Lord, more. And it will be filled. In our praise and our worship and our joy, glorying in our King will have no end. Can you feel that? Can you imagine that? What a glorious day. And that promise of total dominion, complete, without sin or fall or rebellion or black befouled hearts and minds are no more on that day. Those promises aren't just for a time. They are temporary. These promises are permanent. Praise God. They're forever. And despite our own weakness and the temptations of the world and the work of the devil, nevertheless, Christ gets the victory. He is the victor. And because the end was built into beginning, the resurrection means everything. Christ's resurrection is central to all that is in the Bible. I was going to bring out, possibly I'll mention, we'll, we'll go deeper into this next week, but you know, that well-known psalm, Psalm 23, the end, it ends, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's very good reason to see the verb there, not as dwell, but return. I'll return to the house of the Lord forever. And it speaks of resurrection. Right? Resurrection is not something that's new in the Gospels. It's built into creation. It's, it, it means everything. The end was built into beginning. And his resurrection is central. And doesn't reflecting on these wonderful truths, complex but simple, doesn't this cause your hearts to be warmed and burned with love and zeal for our King and our Lord? I pray that it does. 
Within a day so filled with junk and ugly harshness, including from our own hearts and mouths. Oh, what a joy that our King reigns in glory now and will in fullness and completeness in that last day. What a joy. And when we consider all these things and the ramifications of the resurrection, all of that ugliness and the problems of the world start to be put into perspective. And what happens? They begin to fall away. We're not obsessed so much on these things. They diminish. They lose the weight and the terror and the hold that they once had on us. Because next to a great God, a God who has accomplished both in the past, for the certainty of the future, next to that God and that God's promises, what is man or the schemes of man or the works of the devil that I should be afraid? They're nothing. And even though we are on this side of the consummation, we are yet on this side of the resurrection. And brothers and sisters, though death still will come for us all, we ought, above all people, to be filled with joy inexpressible because of these truths. When we think of the recreation, where God is all in all, when we think of Christ, the first fruits, the guarantee of our own wonderful resurrection, indeed, joy inexpressible. And when we do, we needn't be gripped with terror or uncertainty about what's in store for us beyond the grave. We don't need to live in denial or pretending as if life, this life is all there is. This life is not all there is. To believe that, what a, what a truly sor- sorry and unhappy life that would be. No, brothers and sisters, you can be sure, you can know for certain that there's more than just this. And praise God, he has given us a more sure word. We can know that. We don't have to grow up in the dark or live in radical skepticism. Being fooled that we can't know anything. What a sad, sad life. Dear Christian, we can know. Every day when we wake up, the certainty that there is more than just this. There is more. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is evidence of that. And even though that oppressor, death, is coming, brothers and sisters, that oppressor is doomed for destruction. And on that last day, we will stand before the Lord, not naked, not clothed in the pathetic rags of our own works, or pretended righteousness, but rather we will stand before the Father, dear Christian, clothed in the perfect robes of His righteousness. In His righteousness, we are covered and we will stand. May that give us hope in this life. And may it uh, fill our tired, saddened hearts with joy because there is the best news for us to know. And that is that Christ has been raised from the dead for unworthy, dirty sinners like you and like me. And that causes us to flee to Jesus for the first time or for the thousandth time. Flee to him. Put your trust in Jesus because there is no salvation apart from him. And as you go back down from here, the spiritual Mount Zion, back into the world, you go with the knowledge and the confidence and the comfort and the boldness that comes from knowing these truths. And may you, with a passion you can't control, like that excitement that you had from a hole-in-the-wall place where you had great food. May you tell others of the delights of the gospel meal that you partake of every Lord's Day. And God may grant faith and repentance to those who come and give life. 
All praise and glory and honor be to him. 